live from Los Angeles inside of a closet. It's Man Reads Woman. The show where a man reads awesome works written by women. It's never been done before. We're going to keep on going. So that was my intro for today. Uh, it's April Fool's Day. It's early. Yeah, it's LA early. It's like five. Um, it's kind of quiet too. So we're going to kind of record in the mornings, I feel like, to kind of get some quiet time. I think we last left off. We're on chapter five. Um, plans are starting to happen within our characters. Uh, some of them might be on the move, as we say. Um, this is kind of a long chapter. Actually, these next two or three will be kind of long. So eventually, I think I'd mentioned in some of my previous shows, I will try to condense chapters um, with Anchor, which is how I'm making my show, which is amazing and super simple. I uh, only have 30 minutes to record at a time. So I made the mistake once of getting halfway through a chapter and it cut out on me. So for now, we're going to do chapter by chapter. But eventually, faithful listener, we will... Uh, get it into a couple chapters per episode. That way you don't have to scroll through so many, even though there's not that many yet, but we're going to continue. So right now we're on chapter five of The Secret of Chimneys by Agatha Christie. First night in London. There's often a flaw in the best laid plans. George Lamox had made one mistake. There was a weak spot in his preparations. The weak spot was Bill. Bill Eversley was an extremely nice lad. He was a good cricketer and a scratch golfer. He had pleasant manners and an amiable disposition. But his position in the foreign office had been gained, not by brains, but by good connections. For the work he had to do, he was quite suitable. He was more or less George's dog. He did no responsible or brainy work. His part was to be constantly at George's elbow to interview unimportant people whom George did not want to see, to run errands, and generally make himself useful. All this Bill carried out faithfully enough. When George was absent, Bill stretched himself out on the biggest chair and read the sporting news. And in doing so, he was merely carrying out a time-honored tradition. Being accustomed to send Bill on errands, George had dispatched him to the Union Castle offices to find out when the Garnoth Castle, that ship, was due in. Now, in common with most well-educated young Englishmen, Bill had a pleasant but quite inaudible voice. Any elocution master would have found fault with his pronunciation of the word Granarth. It might have been anything. The clerk, the clerk took it to be Carnfrey. The Carnfrey Castle was due in on the following Thursday. He said so. Bill thanked him and went out. George Lamox accepted the information and laid his plans accordingly. He knew nothing about Union Castle liners and took it for granted that James McGrath would duly arrive on Thursday. Therefore, at the moment he was buttonholing Lord Caterham on the steps of the club on Wednesday morning, he would have been greatly surprised to learn that the Garnoth Castle had docked at Southampton the preceding afternoon. At two o'clock that afternoon, Anthony Cade, traveling under the name Ginny McGrath, stepped out of the boat train at Waterloo, hailed a taxi, and after a moment's hesitation, ordered the driver to proceed to the Blitz Hotel. One might as well be comfortable, 
said Anthony to himself as he looked with some interest out of the taxi windows. It was exactly 14 years since he had been in London. He arrived at the hotel, booked a room, and then went for a short stroll along the embankment. It was rather pleasant to be back in London again. Everything was changed, of course. There had been a little restaurant there, just past Blackfriars Bridge, where he had dined fairly often, in company with other earnest lads. He had been a socialist then, and worn a flowing red tie. Young, very young. He retraced his steps back to the Blitz. Just as he was crossing the road, a man jostled against him, nearly making him lose his balance. They both recovered themselves, and the man muttered an apology, his eyes scanning Anthony's face narrowly. He was short, thick-set man of the working glasses, with something foreign in his appearance. Anthony went on to the hotel, wondering as he did so, what had inspired that searching glance. Nothing in it, probably. The deep tan of his face was somewhat unusual looking amongst these pallid Londoners, and it had attracted the fellow's attention. He went up to his room, and, led by a sudden impulse, crossed to the looking glass and stood studying his face in it. Of the few friends of the old days, just chosen few, was it likely that any of them would recognize him now if they were to meet him face to face? He shook his head slowly. When he had left London, he had been just 18, a fair, slightly chubby boy with a misleading seraphic expression. Small chance that the boy would become recognized in the lean, brown-faced man with the quizzical expression he is now. The telephone beside the bell rang, and Anthony crossed over to the receiver. Hello. The voice of the desk clerk answered him. Mr. James McGrath? Speaking. A gentleman has called to see you. Anthony was rather astonished. To see me? Yes, sir. A foreign gentleman. What is his name? There was a slight pause. And then the clerk said, I will send up a page boy with his card. Anthony replaced the receiver and waited. In a few minutes, there was a knock at the door and a small silver page appeared. Sorry, small page, not a silver page. That would be a weird person being covered in silver. No, a small page answered, bearing the card upon a tray. Anthony looked at it. The following name was engraved upon it. Baron Lolo Pretzel. He now fully appreciated the clerk's pause. For a moment or two, he stood studying the card and then made up his mind. Show the gentleman up. Very good, sir. In a few minutes, the Lord Baron Lolo Pretzel was ushered into the room. A big man with an immense fan-like black beard and a high, bald forehead. He brought his heels together with a click and bowed. Mr. McGrath, he said. Anthony imitated his movements as nearly as possible. Baron, he said, then drawing forward a chair. Pray sit down. I have not, I think, had the pleasure of meeting you before. That is so, agreed the Baron, seating himself. It is my misfortune, he added politely, and mine also, responded Anthony on the same note. Let us now to business come, said the Baron. I represent in London the loyalist party of Herzlovakia.
and represented admirably, I am sure, murmured Anthony. You are too kind, he said stiffly. Mr. McGrath, I will not from you conceal anything. The moment has come for the restoration of the monarchy. In the bayance since the martyrdom of his most gracious majesty, King Nicholas IV of blessed memory. Amen, murmured Anthony. I mean, here, here. On the throne will be placed his highness Prince Michael, who the support of the British government has. Splendid, said Anthony. It's very kind of you to tell me all this. Everything arranged is when you come here to trouble make. The Baron fixed him with a stern eye. My dear Baron, protested Anthony. Yes, yes, I know what I am talking about. You have with you the memoirs of the late Count Stipulitich. He fixed Anthony with an accusing eye again. And what if I have? What have these memoirs of Count Stipulitich to do with Prince Michael? They will cause scandals. Most memories do that, and memoirs for that matter, said Anthony soothingly. Of many secrets he the knowledge had. Should he reveal but the quarter of them, Europe into war plunged may be. Come, come, said Anthony. It can't be all as bad as that. An unfavorable opinion of the Abulovich will abroad be spread. So democratic is the English spirit. I can quite believe, said Anthony, that the Abulovich may have been a trifle high-handed now and again. It runs in the blood. But people in England expect that sort of thing from the Balkans. I don't know why they should, but they do. You do not understand, said the Baron. You do not understand at all, and my lips are sealed, he sighed. What exactly are you afraid of, asked Anthony. Until I have read the memoirs, I do not know, explained the Baron simply. But there is sure to be something. These great diplomats are always indiscreet. The apple cart upset will be, as the saying goes. Look here, said Anthony kindly. I'm sure you're talking you're taking altogether too pessimistic a view of the whole thing. I know all about publishers. They sit on manuscripts and hatch them like eggs. It'll be at least a year before the thing is published. Either a very deceitful or a very simple young man you are. All is arranged for the memoirs and a Sunday newspaper to come out immediately. Oh? Anthony was somewhat taken aback. But you can always deny everything, he said hopefully. The Baron shook his head sadly. No, no. Through the hat you talk. Let us to business come. One thousand pounds you ought to have, is it not so? You see... I have the good information got. I certainly congratulate you on your intelligence department of the loyalists. Then I offer you 1500. Anthony stared at him in amazement, then shook his head ruefully. I'm afraid it can't be done, he said with regret. Good. I to you offer 2000. Baron, you tempt me. You really tempt me but I still say it can't be done. Your own price name, then, 
I'm afraid you don't understand the position. I'm perfectly willing to believe that you are on the side of the angels and that these memoirs may damage your cause. Nevertheless, I've undertaken the job and I've got to carry it out through. You see, I can't allow myself to be bought off by the other side. That kind of thing isn't done. The Baron listened very attentively. At the end of the speech, he nodded his head several times. I see. Your honor as an Englishman it is. Well, we don't put it that way ourselves, said Anthony, but I dare say, allowing for a difference in vocabulary, I think that we both mean much the same thing. The Baron rose to his feet. For the English honor I much respect have, he announced. We must another way try. I wish you good morning. He stood up, drew his heels together, clicked, bowed, and marched out of the room, holding himself stiffly erect. Now I wonder what he meant by that, mused Anthony. Was it a threat? Not that I'm a least bit afraid of that old man Lollipop. Actually, that's a better name for him. I shall call him Baron Lollipop. He took a turn or two up and down the room, undecided of his next course of action. The date stipulated upon for delivering the manuscript was a little over a week ahead. Today was the 5th of October. Anthony had no intention of handing over before the last moment. Truth to tell, he was now more feverishly anxious to read these memoirs. He had meant to do so on the boat coming over, but had been laid low with a touch of fever and not at all had been in the mood for deciphering crabbed and an illegible handwriting, for none of the manuscript was typed. He was now more than ever determined to see what all the fuss was about. There was the other job, too. On an impulse, he picked up the telephone book and looked up the name of Ravel. There were six Ravels in the book. Edward Henry Ravel, surgeon of Harley Street, and James Ravel and Company, Saddlers, Lennox Ravel of Abbotbury Mansions, Hampstead, Miss Mary Ravel with an address in Eoling, the Honorable Mrs. Timothy Ravel of 487 Pont Street, and Mrs. Willis Ravel of 42 Cottigan's Square. Eliminating the Saddlers and Miss Mary Ravel, that gave him four names to investigate, and there was no reason to suppose that the lady lived in London at all. He shut up the book with a sort of shake of the head. For the moment, I'll leave it up to chance, he said. Something usually turns up. The luck of the Anthony Cades of this world is perhaps in some measure due to their own belief in it. Anthony found what he was after not after a half hour, when he was turning over the pages of an illustrated paper. It was a representation of some tableau organized by the Dutch of, Duchess of Perth. Below the central figure, a woman in Eastern dress, was the inscription. The Honorable Mrs. Timothy Ravel as Cleopatra. Before her marriage, Mrs. Ravel was the Honorable Virginia Cawthorn, a daughter of Lord Egbuston. Anthony looked at the picture for some time, slowly pursing up his lips as though to whistle. Then he tore out the whole page, folded it up and put it in his pocket. He went upstairs again, unlocked his suitcase and took out the packet of letters. He took out the folded page from his pocket and slipped it under the string that held them together. Then at a sudden sound behind him, he wheeled around sharply. 
A man was standing in the doorway. The kind of man whom Anthony had fondly imagined existed only in the chorus of a comic book opera. A sinister-looking figure, with a squat, brutal head and lips drawn back in an evil grin. What the devil are you doing here? asked Anthony. And who let you come up? I pass where I please, said the stranger. His voice was guttural and foreign, though his, for though his English was idiomatic enough. Another Dago, thought Anthony. Well, get out, do you hear? He went on aloud. The man's eyes were fixed on the packet of letters which Anthony had caught up. I will get out when you have given me what I have come for. And what's that, may I ask? The man took a step closer. The memoirs of Count Stipulitich, he hissed. It's impossible to take you seriously, said Anthony. You're so completely the stage villain. I like your getup very much. Who sent you here? Baron Lollipop? But run? The man jerked out a string of harsh-sounding consonants. So that's how you pronounce it, is it? A cross between gargling and barking like a dog? I don't think I could say it myself. My throat's not made up that way. I shall have you go on calling him Lollipop. So he sent you, did he? But he received a vehement negative. The visitor went so much as to spit upon the suggestion in a very realistic manner. Then he drew from his pocket a sheet of paper, which he threw upon the table. Look, he said, look and tremble, accursed Englishman. Anthony looked with some interest, not troubling to fulfill the latter part of the command. On the paper was traced the crude design of a human hand in red. It looks like a hand, Anthony remarked. But if you say so, I'm quite prepared to admit it's a cubist picture of a sunset at the North Pole. It is the sign of the comrades of the Red Hand. I am a comrade of said Red Hand. You don't say so, said Anthony, looking at him with much interest. Are the others all like you? I don't know what the eugenic society would have to say about it. The man snarled angrily. Dog, he said. Worse than dog. Paid slave of an effinite monarchy. Give me the memoirs and you shall go unscathed. Such is the clemency of the Brotherhood. It's very kind of them, I'm sure, said Anthony, but I'm afraid that both you and they are laboring under a misapprehension. My instructions are to deliver the manuscript, not to your amiable society, but to a certain firm of publishers. Ha! laughed the other. Do you think you will ever be permitted to reach that office alive? Enough of this fool's talk. Hand over the papers or I'll shoot. Hopefully my accent stays the same. He drew a revolver from his pocket and brandished it in the air. But there he misjudged his Anthony Cade. He was not used to men who could act as quickly or quicker than they could think. Anthony did not wait to be covered by the revolver. Almost as soon as the other got it out of his pocket, Anthony had sprung forward and knocked it out of his hand. The force of the blow sent the man swinging around so that he presented his back to the assailant. The chance was too good to be missed. With one mighty, well-directed ass kick, Anthony sent the man flying through the doorway into the corridor where he collapsed in a heap. I added a word. Anthony stepped out after him, but the doughy comrade of the red hand had had enough. 
He got nimbly to his feet and fled down the passage. Anthony did not pursue him, but he went back to his own room. So much for the comrades of the Red Hand, he remarked. Picturesque appearance, but easily routed by direct action. How the hell did that fellow get in, I wonder? There's one thing that stands out pretty clearly. This isn't going to be quite such a soft job as I thought. I've already fallen foul of both the Loyalist and the Revolutionary Parties. Soon, I suppose, the Nationalists and the Independent Liberals will be sending up a delegation. One thing's fixed. I'll start on that manuscript tonight. Looking at his watch, Anthony discovered it was nearly nine o'clock, and he decided to dine where he was. He did not anticipate any more surprise visits, but he felt that it was up to him to be on his guard. He had no intention of allowing his suitcase to be ruffled whilst while he was downstairs in the grill room. He rang the bell and he asked for the menu, selected a couple of dishes, and ordered a bottle of Chamblinton. The waiter took the order and withdrew. Whilst he was waiting for the meal to arrive, he got out the package of the manuscript and put it on the table with the letters. There was a knock at the door, and the waiter entered with a small table and the accessories for the meal. Anthony had strolled over to the mantelpiece. Standing there with his back to the room, he was directly facing the mirror, and idly glancing at it, he noticed a curious thing. The waiter's eyes were glued on the parcel of manuscript. Shooting little glances sideways at Anthony's immovable back, he moved softly around the table. His hands were twitching and he kept passing his tongue over his dry lips. Anthony observed him more closely. He was a tall man, supple like all waiters, with a clean-shaven, mobile face. An Italian, Anthony thought not a Frenchman. At the critical moment, Anthony wheeled around abruptly. The waiter startled slightly, but pretended to be doing something with the salt cellar. What's your name? Anthony asked abruptly. Guispeppi, Monsieur. Italian, huh? Yes, Monsieur. Anthony spoke to him in that language, and the man answered fluently enough. Finally, Anthony dismissed him with a nod. But all the while, he was eating the excellent meal which Giuseppe served to him. He was thinking rapidly. Had he been mistaken? Was Giuseppe's interest in the parcel just ordinary curiosity? It might be so, but remembering the feverishly intent of the man's excitement, Anthony decided against the theory. All the same, he was puzzled. Dash it all, Anthony said to himself. Everyone can't be after the blasted manuscript. Perhaps I am fancying things. Dinner concluded and cleared away. He applied himself to the pursuit of memories. Sorry. He pursued himself to the memoirs. Owing to the illegibility of the late Count's handwriting, the business was a slow one. Anthony's yawns succeeded one after another with suspicious rapidity. At the end of the fourth chapter, he gave it up. And so, he had found the memoirs insufferably dull, with no hint of scandal of any kind. He gathered up the letters and where the wrapping of the manuscript, which were lying in a heap together on the table, and he locked them up in a suitcase. Then he locked the door, and as an additional precaution, put a chair against it. On the chair, he placed the water bottle from the bathroom. Surveying these preparations with some pride, he undressed and got into bed. He had one more shot at the Count's memoirs, but felt his eyelids drooping, and stuffing the manuscript under his pillow, he switched out the light and fell asleep almost immediately.
It must have been four hours later that he awoke with a start. What had awakened him, he did not know. Perhaps a sound, perhaps only the consciousness of danger with which in men who have led an adventurous life has fully developed, such as himself. Fucking mouthful, Agatha, Jesus. For a moment, he lay quite still, trying to focus his impressions. He could hear a very stealthy rustle, and then he became aware of a denser blackness somewhere between him and the window on the floor by the suitcase. With a sudden spring, Anthony jumped out of bed, switching the light on as he did. A figure sprang up from where he had been kneeling by the suitcase. It was the waiter, Giuseppe. In his right hand gleamed a long, thin knife. He hurled straight himself at Anthony, who was by now fully conscious of his own danger. He was unarmed, and Giuseppe was evidently thoroughly at home with his own weapon. Anthony sprang to one side, and Giuseppe missed him with the knife. The next minute, the two men were rolling on the floor together, locked in a close embrace. The whole of Anthony's facilities were centered on keeping a close grip of Giuseppe's right arm so that he would be unable to use the knife. He bent it slowly back. At the same time, he felt the Italian's other hand clutching at his windpipe, stifling him, choking. And still, desperately, Anthony bent the right arm back. There was a sharp tinkle as the knife fell to the floor. At the same time, the Italian extricated himself with a swift twist from Anthony's grip. Anthony sprang up too, but he made the mistake of moving towards the door to cut off the other's retreat. He saw, too late, that the chair and the water bottle were, were just as he had arranged them. Giuseppe had entered by the window, and it was by the window which he made for now. In the instant repite given to him by Anthony's move towards the door, he had sprung out onto the balcony, leapt over <clears throat> the adjoining balcony, and he leapt through the window. Sorry, I had a mouthful of spit there. <clears throat> That's too much information. Sorry, listener. I apologize. I got about three minutes left, and we're almost done with this chapter. So anyway, Anthony moves towards the door. He sprung out onto the balcony. He leapt over the adjoining balcony and had disappeared through the adjoining window. Adjoining, adjoining, adjoining. Anthony knew well enough that it was of no use to pursue him. His way of retreat was doubtless fully assured. Anthony would merely get himself into trouble. He walked over to the bed, thrusting his hand beneath the pillow and drawing out the memoirs. Luckily, that they had been there and not in the suitcase. He crossed over to the suitcase and looked inside, meaning to take out the letters. Then he swore softly under his breath. Fucking bitch. The letters were gone. End of the chapter. So, something I want to try to do more is have fun. I'm going to throw a few more words in there. And, uh, you know, thanks for listening. Man Reads Woman. I'm going to try to do this more in the morning so it sounds a little bit quieter. Be patient with my accents, folks. I just want to have fun, and I hope you are too. Enjoy yourself. I'm going to get some music up. I'm going to get some producers. I'm going to get some guests. I don't know what the hell is going to happen with this show, but we're going to have some fun, folks. Because like I said at the beginning of this, I get 30 minutes. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of pushing it with 27 minutes right now and 40 seconds, but I'm having fun. And this is fun for me. So I hopefully you're enjoying yourself too. Stay tuned for the next episode of Man Reads Woman. Doodles. <laughs>